Welcome back to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard's Transmissions. I'm your host, Jason P. Woodbury, and our guest this week is Chris Forsythe, guitarist, band leader, composer, and DIY lifer. His studio albums evoke the punk psychedelia of television, balancing 70s rock grooves and loose exploratory feels a la the dead. But as good as his studio LPs are, it might be on live recordings that his sound is best showcased. His latest is called First Flight. On it, he's joined by guitarist Dave Harrington, drummer Ryan Jewell, and bassist Spencer Zahn on stage at New Blue in New York City on September 20th, 2019. The uh, before times, I think we're calling them. Who knows how long it will be before we can safely cram into a room to take in some live jams, but in the meantime, the 40-some minutes of First Flight should help those missing the thrills of unexpected and immersive live music. Forsyth joined me to discuss his roots, time spent studying with Richard Lloyd of television, and his motivations for opening a DIY space in Philadelphia called Jerry's on Front. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you listening. Before we get into the talk, I want to remind you that on September 20th, Radio Free Aquarium Drunkard will be back on Dublin from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. West Coast time. Tune in for four hours of RFAD sounds, including Marty Sartini Garner's Personal Sky, Tyler Wilcox's Doom and Gloom from the Tomb, and my show, Range and Basin. This month, we'll also be highlighting some of the best songs from Aquarium Drunkers' Lanyap sessions, including some selections from our new vinyl collaboration with Org Music, The Lanyap Sessions Volume 2, which you might still be able to track down at an independent record shop. But they're moving fast. Okay. So here we go. It's time for transmissions. I'll speak with you more on the other side. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on the Aquarium Drunker Transmissions podcast. It's uh, real nice to have you here. Thanks, Jason. I want to, uh, I guess, start off by asking you how you are navigating 2020, the strangest year uh, that I've ever experienced. Uh, how uh, how are you hanging in and how uh, is the general insanity affecting your creative practice basically yeah um well it's been yeah it's definitely been the strangest year on record uh in my lifetime um and yeah you know it's been kind of all over the place uh you know when it started um you know i i put out a live record with garcia peoples myself self-released that i had planned on having come out you know for months without any sense of that live music was going to be gone, you know? And, uh, and then it ended up coming out like right when the shutdowns were starting and stuff, late March, mid March. Yeah. And so it suddenly felt like this thing that, um, uh, you know, in certain circles I had been advised that like, Oh, live records aren't very marketable. And then suddenly it was like this unusual thing, like, Oh, you can't even go see a gig anymore. And you realize right. you never even conceived that that might be a possibility that, you know, um, we'd be sitting here, you know, even six months later and there's, you know, it's not back to normal and probably won't be for quite some time. So, um, you know, I was supposed to go on tour myself. That seems so long ago thinking about it. I'd forgotten about it practically, but yeah, I was supposed to go on tour, um, actually out West for the first time in, in quite a few years, um, supporting white denim and, uh, you know, I was looking forward to that tour, but you know, that, that, that got pulled out obviously. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, and then just, and then there's just like the general grind of being in Philly and the, you know, uh, the George Floyd protests and the unrest that surrounded that very much, you know, impacted us and our lives and our feelings and our, you know, hopes and stuff. Um, and then, you know, in the midst of it all, um, yeah, I mean, I'm still trying to kind of sort out, you know, what it means creatively. I mean, I've been, I, you know, I, 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 I was fortunate enough to have a bunch of other kind of 
well-recorded live gigs from last year that I was, that I, you know, when I, you know, you record them and you're like, oh, I'll get to these someday. And then it was like, well, I guess now's, now's the time to get to them. <laughs> so yeah, now's, started, now's today's the day. Yeah. Yeah. I started mixing them. And, um, and so, you know, that's, that's been uh, good and creative and I love working in the studio like that and everything, but it, it also in a way is sort of, um, you know, in a way it's also kind of like looking back, it's like a, you know, retrospective thing, a live recording from, you know, eight, 12 months ago or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. as opposed to creating something new that then you're going to push out to see and, you know, see what happens. But I mean, I've been, I've been, you know, as usual, just sort of collecting riffs and, um, uh, been preoccupied, preoccupied with certain things that have been preventing me from kind of getting into it. But, um, you know, I'm going to try to, uh, get some like long distance recording experiments going on with Ryan Jewell and Doug McCombs and maybe some other people, um, you know, which we've been sort of chatting about and sort of telegraphing that we'll get, get to this, but that's, that's something I'm hoping to get into in the fall. Yeah. Well, you've obviously, you know, you've put out great studio records, but live music is such a huge, huge part of what, of what you do, you know? Um, and you're one of those artists who there's just a, uh, there's a lot of material of yours out in the world, you know, and, uh, I guess it, it does it feel somewhat vindicating to have, uh, all of these live, uh, recordings all of a sudden, you know, uh, the conventional wisdom. Yeah. People don't like live records, but, uh, yeah, it, as, as everybody has adjusted to the live streams and the sort of long distance element of, you know, nobody gets to go see shows. Does it sort of feel vindicating to some degree? I mean, uh, that might be a strong word, but you know, it, 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 a little bit, certainly the Garcia, the record with Garcia peoples, you know, I was specifically told like, Oh, it's really cool. But I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if that's like, if I, he's like, I, like, I don't buy live records. Who's going to buy live records. Sure. And I was like, ah, you know, screw it. I'm going to, I'll do it myself then. So it, it's been empowering. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. And it, it, it coincided with, um, you know, band camp kind of sweeping into the rescue and filling the void and, you know, showing people how it's done and, uh, you know, kind of putting out there, putting a business model out there that, you know, is about kind of spreading the wealth and spreading the resources rather than, you know, glomming them all up to the top. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, there's, it's like, whenever there's disruptions like this, uh, you know, there's going to be, obviously casualties and bad things that happen and destructive forces, but there's also going to be some, uh, things to embrace as well. You know, I mean, it, you know, I mean, I, I think about it in a way like a metaphor for, uh, you know, improvising. I mean, when, you know, sometimes when things go off the rail, you, you follow it, not, uh, you know, try to pull it back to what it was or what you want it to be or what you expect it to be. And you just have to kind of, uh, embrace the unknowns. <clears throat> And so, yeah, certainly I think that this, the, the, like the band camp thing has been really great and kudos to them for really leading the way on that. And especially in the face of, you know, the other streaming services, you know, beyond indifference, uh, yeah. to it out, yeah. of, out of touch, out of touchness. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and so, so that's a good thing. Um, but you know, uh, I don't want it to stay like this forever either. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you miss being on stage. Yeah, I mean the funny thing is, is that um, I don't really tour very much. Like I, I, I somebody had described. Uh, I saw something in print, and someone described me as like, you know, hard touring or something. And I counted. I was like, I played 19 gigs last year. Right. <laughs> you know, almost all of them in either Philadelphia or New York, with a few exceptions. Um, sure. Sure. And, but I but I love playing live and it's a huge component of what I do um, in my mind. I mean, it's always uh, and 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 also I mean, as a performer and then also as, uh, you know, a listener, you know, live is where it's the most at for me. You know, like that's like I love recordings and and you can go down the rabbit hole and, uh, you know, and, and all that. But like. Um, you know, I mean, that's what the rarity of experience is about that title, which is just like, you, you can't, uh, you can't bottle it, you know, it means as much as you try, even like the live records, which, you know, are, they're all obviously, I mean, it's all mediated. So, um, sure. 
but you know having having that live experience both as a performer and as a listener is really uh my favorite you know was forum yeah was the was the garcia people's uh re- release was was that uh also pulled from the same residency performances that the new album first flight is it, or was that a different residency or it was it was the same exact time it was the same month it wasn't at new blue though so we i played mm. every i think it was a friday at new blue in september and then on one of the saturdays garcia peoples came down to philly and we recorded that here so it was i mean it's very much of a piece with it and the same i think the same kind of uh energy yeah uh and excuse me like um you know the same sort of like uh I don't, yeah, just like vitality or something that comes from from that, you know having that kind of like focused uh, opportunity to play the same place every week, but have it be different every time. And yeah, and so we, you know, we added another date to it to to do the thing in Philly. Was the was the uh, sort of modus operandi pretty much the same with Garcia Peoples as it was with Ryan Jewell and Spencer Zahn and Dave Harrington, where? you didn't prepare really anything. It was just sort of go on stage and see what happens. Or was there a little bit more structure for the Garcia people's thing? It was definitely not as free form in, in all ways as the, the first flight group was. I mean, I I, like, I didn't even know what two of their voices sounded like (laughs) before the gig, you know, like we'd we'd never, we'd never met Um, with Garcia people's. I mean, we'd played, I mean, I've known those guys for years, years, and and we had played multiple gigs before and done some rehearsals. I mean, there's still a huge, you know, dollop of like, let's see what happens in it, um, without a doubt. But uh, but you know, we were also playing songs that had, you know, room for improvisation or spaces where it was like, you know, there was no script or whatever. But um, but there was, you know, I think there was a set list, uh, perhaps. Yeah. And um, and the the first flight recording is just complete first meeting, off the cuff. Uh, let's see what happens. This could see if we can get this off the ground. You know. So you know that's such a, a, an interesting place for a group to find itself. You know, a group of people to just like essentially be willing to go wherever it's going to go. And I. Um, I keep thinking about that. Well, I mean, what did you feel like going on stage that night? I mean, was there a feeling of, I mean, obviously you you knew that like everybody involved was experienced with the, you know, the act of improvisation. But I mean, what was sort of your feeling stepping on stage? Was there, uh, is there a kind of excitement? Is there a kind of, uh, you know, nervousness? How, how does it feel for you at this point? You've been playing music a long time, but what does it feel like? going on stage with well, that with that level of, you know, openness as a possibility. I mean, I spent most of the late 90s and aughts doing that, you know, right. pretty much. Like, I didn't start really uh, doing kind of stuff that was more song-oriented until, you know, the last 10 years, maybe. Uh, even a little less. I mean, I guess, uh, yeah. So, um I mean, the first sort of, you know, rock band format record was Solar Motel, and that came out in, I think, 2013. So, you know, the the completely flying blind thing is uh, pretty comfortable to me. Um, uh, and and it was nice. I mean, it was also nice to uh, check back into that approach with all this time having elapsed and all these other experiences and uh, even though you know all the stuff, there's always improvisation in it, but having more song structures and and um, rehearsal and so forth, then to come in come into the free form thing with that kind of experience or you know that under the bridge, uh, I think definitely changed it. And it was, I mean, like I couldn't have made this record ten years ago, I'm sure, you know, or we couldn't. I mean, it's a totally collective effort, you know. Yeah. And um, and it was just one of those things where I think there was just really good chemistry. I mean. Um, you know, we had a, a very brief chat. I mean, like we kind of met, I don't think there was even hardly much of a sound check. We sort of set up through our stuff up and, and then I think, you know, uh, Spencer and Dave went someplace and like Ryan went someplace with his, uh, with Danette, his partner. And I went and got a beer or a burger or something like that. And then we all just met back before we played. 
And I think right when we were growing up, somebody, one of us said something like, should we, should we talk about anything? Yeah, right. And it's like, it's like, no, let's, it's too late for that. <laughs> like, you know, like sometimes, yeah. you know, that's another one of those things where like, you can, you can talk too much, you can talk too little. And, um, this was definitely a thing where like, we're, we just got to go up there and, and do it. Um, and yeah, and there was, and it turned out to be really good chemistry. You know, so you, you talked a little bit about your, your past, you know, uh, in, in more, uh, directly experimental combinations, you know, your earlier group, uh, how, how do, how do you say your, your first band? I've never talked with anybody about Well, that's part of the thing is that, I mean, we usually refer, we usually called it PSI, Okay. but we were fine with however anybody wanted to pronounce it because there's also, uh, you know, the, the, the bookstore that, um, the Fugs uh, ran in the East Village was called the Peace Eye Bookstore. Right. And so there's a little bit of that in there. And we, that band <clears throat> really um, had more of an audience in, in Europe. And uh, over there, people would say Peace Eye. Sure. And so often. And so, but then again, you know, it's kind of like my last name. People, I mean, there's multiple ways to pronounce it. And I mean, there is the way that I grew up pronouncing it, but I don't, I don't, usually correct people. In fact, I like the way people say my last name in like the South or in Scotland better, where they kind of emphasize the second syllable, like Forsyth. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but you know, um, it, you know, it's one of those things like we're, you, we're comfortable with multiple meanings and contradictions and, you know, holding different ideas at the same time. I think Psi was, was my sort of, uh, that was going to be my best guess, but I figured I might as well ask you since you're here. Uh, but yeah. you know that group, and then stuff you'd done, of course, with people like Lauren Connors. You know, um, you really had spent a lot of time in that experimental underground where there wasn't a lot of you know song forms, and and I think it's fair to say like less grooving as well. Listening to this oh, first sure. this first flight record, you know, you hear the um, you hear the outness of it. You know, you hear the sort of like uh, we could go anywhere. But you also hear a uh, sort of foundation in um, a pretty like heavy groove, a kind of a a rock feel where it is jammy, but it's not you know uh, not traditional you know jam or whatever. So I guess what yeah. uh, you, you've mentioned that you couldn't make this record a decade ago. Do you think that that you couldn't have done it because over the course of this last decade or so, you embraced a sort of um, a rock and roll feel that maybe you just weren't quite as tapped into when you were uh, experimenting a I little was, bit more. I mean, I, I was, I've been totally tapped into rock and roll my whole life, but well, sure. I just, I mean, I wouldn't be able to play. I wasn't able to play like that 10 years ago. I don't think, uh, yeah. I mean the whole, the, the, you know, the funny sort of, uh, arc of my, uh, learning or my relationship with the guitar is that, you know, I was like self-taught from, when I started and then it kind of hit this wall where I realized I don't know what the heck I'm doing. And I know that I have this very strong emotional and physical pull to do this thing, but I don't know how to do it. And, uh, you know, I was poisoned by the punk ethos that you don't not, don't need to know the, uh, the fundamentals, which, you know, is kind of like sure. how punk ruined, you know, generations of guitar players by destroying their curiosity. Um, and so that's when I went and, and, um, studied with Richard Lloyd and he taught me all this stuff, but you know, it took me like 10 years to be able to, um, process that stuff and deploy it, I think in a, uh, interesting way. And the thing that at the time that I liked about, uh, you know, experimental music or whatever you want to call it, the Im improv kind of world that I was worlds that I was kind of circulating in is that because, you know, keys and notes didn't really apply. You could get into these, get into a flow, uh, sure, how sure. I would say it. And, you know, it was about texture and timbre and, and dynamics and, um, aggression or delicacy. And, you know, those were the, those were the kind of, uh, things that you were exploring. And I mean, I just wasn't able to do that and also be able to stay in key <laughs> or stay in, you know, in, in, a, in a conventional form. And right, so right. I think that I think that what I try the way I try to think about it is with the stuff that I do that's song form oriented or, or 
more, you know, less rhythmically abstract or whatever, that I'm trying to pull in and maintain that interest in like the surface and the textures and the dynamics. But then also, you know, there's all this other information that you can uh, play around with when you, you know, when you get into harmony and, and melodies and stuff and just kind of be more lyrical. What, what was your, what did your study with Richard Lloyd look like? And, and where were you? Is that when you were back in Philly or were you in New York when you, when you studied? With no, him? I was in New York. I, I, I moved to New York in 96 and around, I guess it was 99 or so, 98, 90, it was 98. I think it was 98 into 99 or so there's a couple of years there where I uh, studied with him and I, um, I worked at a cafe on the Upper East Side, and I lived in, I guess, what is now would now be called Park Slope, but back then it was not called that. It was just like Fifth Avenue and Eleventh Street in Brooklyn, just a bunch of ninety-nine cent stores. And I would uh, every Wednesday I would stop at his studio at the Music Building on Eighth Avenue um, at like nine o'clock in the morning or whatever, and have an hour-long lesson, and then I'd get back on the train and go to work. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he just, I mean, he taught me. I mean, I, it's not an understatement to say he taught me how to play the guitar because, in, you know, prior to that, I, uh, you know, I played in bands and sometimes I was even like the lead guitar player in the band. But, you know, I was completely um, uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing in any real way. And, you know, I wasn't making anything very interesting out of it either. I was like, I, but the thing is, I realized I was like, ah, I'm struggling here, but I want to do this. So. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe it's time to like do a little homework. Did he did he did he key in on any existing strengths that you already had as a as a guitarist? Because I mean, you weren't a, a, a real beginner, despite maybe your your lack of uh, you know theory. Do you remember him sort of saying that there was anything that you should accentuate as far as sort of your individual style that you know was impressed upon you? No, I mean we never. He never. Uh, he wasn't about cultivating you know, what, what, what I was doing, he was about just like, I'm going to turn on the faucet and tell you all this stuff that I know and yeah. see how much of it you can catch. Sure. <laughs> you know? sure. So, um, uh, so, I mean, it was utterly invaluable, but it was really kind of up to me, um, what I was going to do with it. Is your, I mean, you, you sometimes, uh, do guitar lessons as well, right? I Is do. And actually I've been doing more since the pandemic because there's been more time and, yeah, you know, I well, enjoy it. and and you gotta you know you can't play shows so you got you gotta do yeah. something. How do, how yeah. does how does your own st teaching style how how has that developed since since you've been doing more of it? Um, well, it's you know, and the one like I say to all the students that I have, it's you know, it's all the jumping off point is all the methodology that I learned from Richard because that's just that's literally how I understand music, and and the guitar, um, and so. You know, there's I, I I have little lesson plans that we you know work on that starts with really fundamental stuff, but then depending on the student, it sort of branches off into different areas. Like I I always say to people that you know I'm if if it, like if your hands work, I can definitely make you a better guitar player. Um, uh, but if but I'm not very good at teaching people who like are absolute beginners. I feel like that's a struggle for me. But um, but you know. Like, I, yeah, I mean, it's because that's what Richard did for me. My hands worked, but I just didn't have the information. Um, and so he, he, he provided that. All right, let's take a minute now to hear about our sponsor. Creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms might help people find your work. They don't always get you paid. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per-stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, you can skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken, so if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on Patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com 
and change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve. All right, let's get back to transmissions. There's been a resurgence in sort of interest in uh, music that combines that the thing we were we've been talking about a little bit the sort of psychedelic rock exploratory but groove based thing with the sort of more underground culture more independent rock thing i guess indie jam is is the way a lot of people would would label that uh, what mm-hmm. what are your you know what are your your thoughts on that as a term i know that musicians notoriously loathe having to get into uh you know, genre definition discussions. But at the same time, I find that one, it's really interesting. And I think that there's a lot of uh, kind of like interesting currents happening uh, where a couple, in, you know, a couple different things might be sort of coalescing in this, in this one sort of uh, zone. Uh, how do you feel about, how do you feel about indie jam? Let's just leave it yeah. very open. I mean, <clears throat> uh, you know, on the one hand, fine. Uh, that's cool. If it helps people understand what's going on, like I have no problem with it, but you know, like from, it's also sort of like real estate agents naming neighborhoods, you know, it's just yeah, like, absolutely. Uh, I guess that's true, but it'll change in three years when you need to change the focus something. So, you know, I don't know my, my relationship with, you know, the music is like, uh, super personal and emotional. And, you know, I'm still, I think that the, and I think this is common with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, creative people in any realm is that they're sort of like what's going through my head often. And like the reference points that I have are the things I'm trying to explore. I don't think necessarily translate overtly to the listener very often, or even in my, even bandmates, you know, like I'll say like, Oh, this song, this is like, you know, whatever. This is like a, some kind of disco stones thing. And they're like, um, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, sure. I, uh, I, I don't get that, but okay. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, I, I, I'm fine with however, whatever makes, whatever helps people hear the music and understand it. I'm fine with it, but I have nothing invested in it. At, have you, but have you seen a sort of resurgence in interest in terms of people, uh, who maybe a couple of years ago were mostly into like, I don't know, pavement or something, wanting to, to explore sort of the, the possibilities afforded by improv. I mean, on, on a more holistic yeah, I guess level, so. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I, you know, I, for me, I think back to, you know, um, also when I was in, in New York in the early 2000s, late, the turn of the century, I guess it was, you know, the scene around the venue tonic, uh, was, you know, to me that feels that's, that was like my, um, uh, that's the place that formed me in a lot of ways. And there was all that was, and the thing about that place was that, you know, you could see Cecil Taylor, uh, one night you could see, uh, you know, Thurston Moore another night, you could see Cecil Taylor and Thurston Moore <laughs> the next night playing together. Like yeah. there was always this sort of like, uh, you know, boundaryless kind of interest there. And, uh, you know, that's, and, and this is all, that's also around the same time that I think, um, you know, the Grateful Dead clicked for me because, uh, I was never a fan, um, when I was younger and I guess it was around the time those Dick's Picks records came out. Um, and I heard one and I was like, oh, this sounds like the stuff that I hear at Tonic except with like country songs in between or something. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I don't know, there, I, you know, I, in my, in my head, that stuff's always kind of happening. So I'm not, I'm not a good assessor of the general state of people's listening habits or whatever, I think, because my own are so kind of insular and, uh, whatever. So, yeah, you you talked about your mind being poisoned by punk. I mean, was there a point where, you know, well, who who are some of the who are some of the punk guitarists that made poisoned you, by punk? Poisoned Chris by punk. Forsyth story. That's what we're, that's what we're gonna name this episode. Chris Forsyth yeah. is it's like a like an action movie. Poisoned by punk. Um, yeah. You know, were, who were some of the, the the punk players that that you were uh, sort of drawn to and. Did it feel like there was, at least in your own mind, sort of a dividing line between like 
this stuff and let's say Disco Stones or the Grateful Dead or, you know, I mean, did they feel oh, like, sure. like rival schools to you, basically? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the, you know, growing up in the 80s and even into the 90s, there was, yeah, I mean, it's it's inconceivable now because, um, you know, a, simultaneously, uh, you know, culture has sort of imploded in on itself and like, you know, yeah. Yeah. boundaries that, that used to be there have been annihilated. But at the same time, in some ways, everybody's even more in their own lane now, you know, just like everything, uh, whether it's your political views or the type of food you like to eat. I mean, you could be completely in this one re reality that is uh, unaware of or unconscious of or um, uh, disregarding of another person's and their and theirs and you know so but but yeah back then um, you know I mean I whatever I, I I I grew up listening to you know classic rock basically uh, I didn't I mean I I didn't come from a musical household particularly although both of my grandfathers were musicians but my parents were not and um, you know I think I mean my dad had like some Billy Joel and Steely Dan records you know I mean I didn't have much at my um, disposal. So, you know, things on the radio or that you would hear in the neighborhood or whatever, you, I, you know, you'd hear waiting in line at the deli in, in suburban New Jersey, you know, and um, and then when I got old enough, you know, into the teen years when, you know, sort of you have you start to kind of define yourself, you know, I, I, I kind of drifted more towards the sort of uh, our band could be your life, you know, type bands and and, you know, countless nameless local ones that were sort of in that uh, world. And yeah, I mean, that was a time when if you were into that, you were not into this. If you're into punk, you were not into the Grateful Dead. If you're into punk, you were not into metal. I mean, I remember sure. I saw, seeing, seeing Nirvana at uh, City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey in September of 91. And my lasting memory of it um, is saying to my friend, like, why are there all these guys in Megadeth shirts here? Like, like, and that's right. what Nirvana did. They brought the punk people together with the metal people. And then it's like, boom, there's this huge group of people. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm of course in favor of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, no boundaries kind of stuff, but, um, but yeah, it was, it, you know, it, yeah, I don't know. It, uh, it now, nowadays it, it's weird cause there's sort of less boundaries in, in, in a certain way or everything's just kind of flattened. I don't know. There's also more yeah. noise. It's, yeah. it's, it's confusing to, to, uh, to parse. I sometimes think about how some of those SST bands were so, uh, so weird though, even within the context of their own, of, of like, you know, punk, uh, certainly, you know, there was sort of an orthodoxy to some of the bands, but then you see the photos like Greg Ginn wearing a dead shirt, you know, or or the yeah. meat, or the meat puppets, you know, who who clearly uh, uh, clearly had listened to uh, and classic even, prep school deadheads. Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> like seriously, you know, like I, I'm here in Arizona, so I, I know that those yeah. guys around here, you know, um, it was this bizarre thing, right, where like you could get your ass kicked for being in a punk band, you know. But like, had they wanted, they they could have done the the country bar band thing, you know. If if that, I mean, they clearly they had the chops and even the sort of interest in it. But there was this sort of like antagonistic weirdness that I really, really am drawn to. And then you hear yeah. about, you know, like let's say Kurt Cobain, who who adored the Meat Puppets, also, uh, you know, infamously. Uh, shitting on Jerry Garcia's legacy and all that yeah. stuff, and I don't, sure, I don't, sure. I don't have any problems with any of that because I find it all so f funny and interesting. The way the lines just feel so arbitrary. So now that flatness that you're talking about, uh, it makes me wonder if even while we're all more open-minded now, are we somehow less interesting? I oh, don't, I don't, I don't think, know. I don't, I don't think we're more open-minded now. <laughs> well, I, I mean, definitely that's, don't. Think that's, that's a good true. point. But um, but I think what you're talking about is also maybe uh, it's 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 a little bit of that thing that I was talking about that I experienced with my own music where I have this in my head. I've got like my references and the little ingredients or stews that I'm trying to make. And it doesn't necessarily come across to the audience. So like I, I you know, I am sure that, you know, in you know, the meat puppets were listening to the dead in the tour van, but then they went on stage and there was a bunch of 16 year old kids that were thought the dead were stupid because the football team were all into them, you know? And so they didn't like, 
but that doesn't matter. Like it, like the, if the, you know, the music translates, the music translates and, and, uh, you know, and then for, for people that want to go and do more, uh, you know, digging and research about it, it creates all this cool backstory or, you know, uh, family tree stuff to trace or interest tree to trace or whatever. But, um, yeah, but yeah, I think that, I think that like, you know, even when you, you know, uh, like, you know, I didn't see the Minutemen, but I saw fire hose and like, I wasn't thinking about T-Rex. I didn't know who T-Rex was when I was 16, really. I mean, sure. I might've known a song or two, but I, you know, and, and like, you know, you hear, uh, you know, Watt talk about these bands that really inspired them. And I think that that's kind of that's also something that I I I aspire to. I mean, I don't think I think that's uh, influence and synthesis. That that's what really um, unique artists do, as opposed to you know mimicry or uh, you know like it should be you, all the flavors should be mixed up to a point that you kind of uh, can't tell where it came from or something. You know? Yeah. Um, at least you, that's the that's the goal that I think about. Yeah, you're not supposed to hear the Blue Oyster Cult fandom in in the Minutemen, but it's good that it's there because it it creates this weird, you know, uh, this weird spice in the mix that that becomes very distinctive. But you know, when you when you dig around and you realize that it's there, I mean, were you the kind of guy that would read articles and interviews with people and sort of look for their reference points and then go check that stuff out? Sure. Yeah. I mean. Uh... Definitely. I think that's, you know, that's certainly how I learned about a lot of things. Uh, you know, when I was, yeah, when I was probably like 14, the first really big band for me that was like a contemporary band, you know, was REM. And, uh, you know, I learned about who the Velvet Underground were through them. So, yeah, you know, yeah. Th thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah I mean, I, you know, I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew Lou Reed from the radio in the New York area, but like, uh, you know, didn't know anything about that other stuff. And so, yeah, you follow the follow the trail, popcorn a trail. A couple of weeks ago, you tweeted uh, something that I really, really loved. It's like my favorite kind of tweet, actually, where you talked about how um, the production and tones on ZZ Top's uh, Tejas album are as ahead of their time as like the stuff that Eno was doing or, you know, some of the, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I think that there's such an interesting thing where... The, the more you think about uh, the lines, the more you realize that whatever angle you approach from uh, can, I don't know, I guess can reveal things that, that you don't always necessarily, uh, things make sense the more you listen, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and I feel like that is really sort of at the spiritual core of what you've been doing on a lot of these live records. The, uh, the first flight thing you know, the notes actually, the liner notes or the biographical notes actually sort of indicate and hint towards the uh, political or spiritual or philosophical underpinnings of improvisation, which is that it, it is one, uh, it requires listening, like actual listening, actual synthesis of the information that you're hearing. And then also, I think, you know, um, requires a certain level of ego suspension and so it just kind of got me thinking about the the, the real impl implications of improvisational music and 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 whether or not you know uh obviously you're not thinking about all this stuff when you're on stage you're not wondering like i wonder what you know political implications what i'm doing you know has as, as you're playing a song but i wonder if in in your own life you know if that's something that uh you think about and that you sort of uh are able to extrapolate from that creative practice something that maybe helps you navigate the insanity of a year like 2020 yeah absolutely i mean uh, you know that david or derek bailey's uh you know improvisation book was really uh fundamental for me also also back around that time when i was studying with richard and hanging out at tonic and seeing derek a lot and getting getting a chance to spend some time with him um, he actually booked the first solo gig I ever played for me. He was doing a night at Tonic that was like solos by people that have never played solo. And we were socially familiar with each other at that point because I would go see him play and we would talk and he was always very gracious and interesting, uh, interested in, in hanging out with people. And uh, and uh, so he was like, oh, Chris, uh, you've never played solo, have you? Um, that's my 
Derek Bailey as Sean Connery. I don't know what that was, but I really uh, liked it though. <laughs> but uh, you know, so so there's that. You know, another thing that springs to mind is um, is this essay that I read by George Lewis um, about uh, you know Eurocentric music versus Afrocentric music, and he, um, I mean, it's it's uh, I'm not going to get the the grace uh, uh, and power of his words but in his memory. But essentially, it's like, you know, the the Eurocentric version of improvisation is called uh, chance and it's controlled by a composer. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the Afrocentric version is improvisation. We're making it up. We're doing this thing as a group. And there's like really, really, really important difference right there, you know. Um, So and, you know, I mean, Cage uh, is an incredible mind. Um, I don't really listen to his music. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you're talking about is is really interesting. And and maybe your specific uh story is interesting in relation to it because you're someone who was maybe drawn to the more uh anarchic uh sort of qualities of of group performance. Then you figured out some of the rules uh and and here we are now where you're able to you know, the, the, they're not separate worlds at this point. You know what I mean? And I think that right. that I think that level of curiosity and that level of, of willingness to uh, to understand form and understand, you know, uh, uh, I guess, you know, for lack of a better term, understand the way things work musically. You know, yeah, that, well, I think I think improvisation and and also this greater these greater ideas we're talking about. It's all about how you meet the moment, you know, um, and the way that like, in the, for example, at the first flight record, you know, uh, and I'm not sure if we even mentioned everybody, but Dave Harrington on guitar, myself on guitar, Spencer Zahn on bass, and Ryan Jewell on drums and percussion. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, Ryan and I have played together a ton. Spencer and Dave have played together a ton. So there's a little bit of like a, maybe a slight head start there in the group for people. Like we had, you know, connections. But, um, you know, it's a more about like uh, working as a team, really. And cooperating. That's really what it is. Cooperation, you know. Uh, so it's like a co-op model, maybe, um, as opposed to, you know, top down. Uh, there's a boss and, you know, this is how everything has to happen. But, you know, to be able to operate that way takes a lot of discipline and takes a lot of work and takes a lot of mistakes. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, like whether... Um, you know, we're, I guess we're, we're about to find out what kind of uh, uh, capacity our society has for those kinds of things, um, you know, whether we have any more mistakes left. But, um, uh, yeah, we, we might be running out of, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we are. Of road, um, yeah. I hope, I hope we're not, but I, 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 you know, we're definitely, there's, we're definitely on very uh, thin ice. And, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that certainly, you know, improvisation is kind of also how I've just always lived my life, uh, for better or worse, you know, and I've learned everything by kind of screwing it up once or twice. And then, um, you know, as I've gotten older, I think I've gotten a little bit better about, uh, uh, figuring out, you know, when's the right time to, uh, you know, make your move or not. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So you, uh, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, you decided, I mean, lots of, we've already talked about sort of the, uh, the the importance of the DIY culture, you know, do it yourself culture in in your life. But a couple of years ago, you opened a DIY space. Uh, yeah. Uh, j- yeah. Well, we call it we call it adult DIY because it's all the good things about DIY minus all the shitty things about DIY. <laughs> like uh, the toilet works. The toilet, toilet works. works. Yeah. It's I got mean, air conditioning in yeah. Philadelphia. That's very important. And in uh, you're in Phoenix or? Yeah, I'm in Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely uh, more I- important. I've definitely seen some experimental shows in like a uh, like a, a warehouse, you know, without AC. I've definitely seen oh, yeah. some some stor- oh, yeah, yeah. some storage unit shows, even you know. And yeah, it's <laughs> and uh, adult DIY has a cool a cool ring to it because I like yeah. I like a you know running water maybe if if I need that for for whatever <laughs> reason you know um, yeah for sure. But but yeah, so so you know uh, uh, Jerry's on front. What what inspired you? Hey, I, I should I should open. A space. I should. I should figure out. You know how to do that well, intense thing. You know, there's a, a, a there's a lot of different factors that uh, went into it, and 
continue to. And, um, you know, in, in, in some ways I, I feel that, um, that the Jerry's project is, uh, in many ways, kind of the most important thing I do or the more important thing that I do than my music. Um, even though, you know, I'm, you know, music is a lifelong thing and it's very much part of who I am and what I do. And I think about it and, and work on it on a daily basis. But I mean, in terms of like, uh, having some sort of ripple effect in the world that I hope is uh, positive and also connecting with community. Um, so it is very much these sort of DIY ideals, uh, but put together with discipline and, um, and mistakes, man, we, we, we made some mistakes, but you know, we were very lucky and very fortunate to, to, um, uh, be able to see them through. And, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, what, what, initially and but what initially uh started was not some uh you know idea of making some sort of huge real world art project it was more like um i couldn't find a good place to rehearse and i was you know i was in one place that got shut down by the city because it was you know illegally zoned and had all kinds of fire code issues and then i was going to get another place and it got busted by the cops because somebody had a bunch of drugs there or something and and then uh, I just couldn't find a good place to rehearse. And um, and so I was talking to a lot of my friends uh, who were in a similar situation and uh, couldn't find a place to rehearse. And it's funny, in Philadelphia, you know, a city, basically a post-industrial uh, Rust Belt city, there's tons and tons of space here. But, like, there is not a uh, – not like in New York where there are the, the arts and music culture – I mean, it goes obviously so through the roof to the, you know, top of the top, you know, mainstream professional big time stuff, but also down into the roots. It's been served and nurtured for a long time. And there's lots of both DIY spaces and also whatever, just rehearsal rooms. If you need a place to play, you can find one. Um, and in Philly, it's just it's not like that or it hasn't been like that. So. Um, so, yeah, we just decided. And, and also, like I said, I'm not like a touring guy like the, you know, the the conventional wisdom of the last 10 or 12 years has been like, Oh, give your money away or give your, uh, um, music away. away, Yeah. Yeah, Give your music away to the streaming services because that's how people listen now and, you know, go on the road for six or eight or 10 months a year. And, you know, I I don't want to do that. (laughs) Um, I don't think that would be good for my, uh, music. I don't think it would be good for my family. I don't think it would be good for my, you know, mental or physical health. Um, and so, I mean, I love playing gigs. I would like to be able to play like 50, you know, that's like, that's a sweet number for me in a year. Um, you know, a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks here, and then go home. But, you know, so I'm not, I'm not like making my living on the road, like a lot of people. And so, um, you know, I had to figure, I, I had been bartending most of my life and I was like, can't do this anymore. So, um, I decided to try to just do something else. And we didn't know, you know, with my wife, uh, Maria Dumlao is a visual artist and we didn't, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, but we had a lot of, uh, 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 and willingness to try it, you know? Um, so, uh, and then when we got the space, we found this one space, it was small enough that we could handle it, but big enough that we could put six rehearsal rooms in it. And it also had this little storefront. Um, so we were like, well, we could put another studio in the storefront, but it would be like kind of building this fortress on this, you know, sort of uh, well past its prime, but still commercial corridor, you know. Um, it's this area that, you know, 40, 50 years ago was where everybody went to go buy their Christmas presents and typical sort of, again, Rust Belt kind of vibe where, you know, white flight and deindustrialization, all this stuff, uh, racism, redlining, yeah, uh, white flight made these conditions, um, where the, you know, neighborhoods imploded, but we also, you know, it's a storefront. We wanted to keep somehow keep it, uh, engaged with the street. And so we're like, Oh, we can do shows here. And it's tiny. I mean, it's like 75 people. It's like, you can barely breathe, but, um, but you know, there's a place in the musical ecosystem, I think for that, that's really important because like you were saying, you've been to shows in storage containers, many of the most, uh, consequential shows for me creatively anyway, happened in living rooms and basements and strange places, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, squats in Italy or something. 
Yeah, well, yeah, and it also is a reminder that you know, uh, as far as the the ecosystem goes, you know, um, not everybody has the the not, not everybody needs to engage with you know uh, service charge, you know, insanity. Totally, and, and or even. Or, or even have the ability to, you know what I mean? Like you're not gonna, yeah, you're not sure. gonna, you're not gonna ever attract more than seventy five people because you're choosing to make something that, you know, has limited well, limited appeal, and that's okay. Yeah, here's another like poisoned by punk uh, uh, comment too. You know, it's like Fugazi they ruined they ruined um, ticket prices for generations. You know, because there's still people that are like, oh, it's more than five bucks, man. It's like how much did a beer cost in 1989 when 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 uh, Fugazi was charging five bucks, like a dollar. Yeah, that's 75 right. cents. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it, like, it's, yeah, you can't expect things to operate um, without them actually being supported. And obviously the music industry is terrible at, provi- you know, building sustainable models of 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 anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, not, uh, not just the music know, except, industry. Ex- except exploitation. Yeah. A hundred percent. But yeah. But um, but, you know, even with. You know, in Philly. So, you know, I moved here in 2009, and um, you know, it's great. It's been the best 10 years of my life. But um, uh, even in the time, you know, the the early teen years or whatever, um, like the live music scene changed here, and I would say it got more professionalized in a way, which had there was good things about that. But the downside byproduct of that was also that like. We realized a, a few years ago, or, or sort of around the time we were starting Jerry's, which was like 2016, 2017, it's like basically um, all of the gigs were now just, they were in bars. There was no other alternative. And even places that I like, you know, venues that I like, like Johnny Brenda's, I mean, they're not really in the business of, uh, uh, you know, they're not really, they're, they're, their business is selling beer and selling food to people and music is just the thing to get asses in the seats. So, uh, or in the door. And so it's, um, you know, it's, 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 there's again, things that I like about it, but also things that I don't like about it. Like, and there's obviously financial barriers that are there too. Like, you know, you go to Johnny Brenda's love you, Johnny Brenda's, but like, you know, uh, and I hope they pull through with yeah, this. I mean, of seriously, of course. but, um, but you know, th- this is, and this is not, I'm not picking on them. It's the whole, you know, there's there's clubs like this everywhere and, uh, you know, uh, venues like this everywhere. But, you know, you go in and, you know, beers are seven or eight bucks and, you know, a plate of food is 15 bucks or 16 bucks or something. And, you know, it gets expensive and it also cuts out the access for certain people. So, you know, like we have a policy at Jerry's where the door charge is um, uh, $10 minimum. I mean, it's suggested. We've never turned anyone away for not being able to pay. And it's totally fine. If someone comes in and says, uh, look, I only got six. Cool. Come on in. But like, you know, if you're going to go and, you know, get that $13 burrito or, or, you know, $16 burger, you can pony up 10 bucks for, you know, some quality live music by a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Or beings. Yeah. And, and you've got, so, and, and you've got it sounding pretty good in there too, which is a nice bonus for a DIY space. And yeah, we're total. that was, that's that again, that's sort of little bit of luck as much as anything because uh on the surface you look at that place and you're like this should not sound good there's this big plexiglass window on the front and everything um but you know it works and especially when there's a lot of uh when there's some bodies in there it sounds sounds really good yeah so obviously- yeah, the, the, whole, the whole thing was definitely you know and again it sort of snowballed like we wanted to do this endeavor okay let's do this endeavor so then you're like how do i do this endeavor and then you're like okay well let's see i could do what you know, the bank tells me to do or whatever, or I can try to, you know, put my own values into play here. And sometimes that means, you know, talking to the bank and whatever, and like navigating these different um, systems. But, you know, that's, that's how life is. And so it's not, it's not, um, you know, you can't uh, isolate yourself off from, from the world, I don't think. I mean, I guess maybe some, some people can, but like, uh, you know, I, I crave engagement and, um, and I like to meet people and talk to people that don't share my views or don't share my background. And, uh, you know, Jerry's is one way that that has, um, you know, I've been able to do that. And, and, you know, the booking policy also is not like, 
um, is every single band that plays there like my hardcore favorite band? Like I don't like I don't I am not a curator. Like, mm-hmm. There's no, like I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a facilitator, you know. And so my main criteria are like I mean, sure, I'd like to, I'd like to be into the music, but also it's like, is this interesting? Are these people cool? Like, are yeah. they going to be uh, good to work with, or are they going to be a pain in the ass? And um, because I don't want to do it if it's if I'm going to have to. You know, there's lots of other parts of my life where I can get into situations with people that are unpleasant and like fraught. Like, I don't want to do that at Jerry's. So and we've we've virtually entirely avoided that. But as a, as a result, I end up, you know, hearing bands that I ordinarily wouldn't. And maybe I wouldn't even like their records. Maybe I don't like their records. But you know what? They were pretty cool live. And uh, and it brought people to this place and got people into a room together. And I mean, you know, now we can. With, with that absence of that, we can really, you know, um, appreciate the value of it, I think, in its absence. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you're eager to get back to it. But in the meantime, uh, you're offering up people can rehearse there right now, right? Well, there's there's, uh, you know, the rooms are rented um, monthly. So they're like um, or mostly. So the, you know, the artists that are in there, um, you know, it's their space. It's like a I mean, some use it for uh you know, they have little project studios in there. Some it's really more just about rehearsing. Some, you know, teach um, or just use it to practice and write. Um, but it's their space, so they can do whatever they want. I mean, we've, uh, you know, we're like trying to follow guidelines and be smart and, and be safe. And I got, you know, hand sanitizer and disinfecting wipes up the wazoo and bag of masks at the door for people if they forgot theirs or something. Um but there is one room that actually there was one one tenant we were renting to, which was Girls Rock Philly, which is a great organization that teaches music to, you know, girls and trans kids. Um, but, you know, they've been they were kind of a pandemic casualty. They, they they asked if they could get out of their lease because they just couldn't pay it anymore. And we were hardly charging them anything. We gave them like a deeply discounted rate. But I decided that in the mean, in, in the wake of that, I would just turn that room into like an hourly room, which they were kind of, that's how they were using it for their people, their network. Yeah. They could let people come in and use the space. So, um, you know, I put it out to them also, like if they want to keep coming, like they'll pay the same nominal fee. But then, you know, I know that there's other people that, you know, there's not needed, need a room to rehearse, but don't want to have a place all month. Yeah. So, yeah. But it seems to me like that idea, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it, it feels like a, like a, like Jerry's feels like a, a fairly natural outgrowth out of your, your sort of artistic ethic and your, your ethos in terms of, uh, of what you hope to accomplish with, with your music, you know? And it's, uh, yeah, I think so. And I, although, you know, if you had told me 10 years ago that I was going to be, you know, doing this, I would have thought you were out of your mind. <laughs> like, I, you know, I never would have, I never would have, um, forecast it. That's yeah. for sure. But then again, that's also part of the improv, uh, you know, uh, point of view. You know, like yeah. deal deal with the situation at hand and and you know do the best that you can with it, and then try to be creative and and have a little bit of fearlessness and you know engage with it. Don't run from it, and um, you know see what comes out of it. Well, that's a perfect place to wrap things up, Chris. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about all this with us here on the, the Transmissions Podcast. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jason. It was fun. That's going to bring this week's episode to a close. If you know someone who might dig transmissions, why don't you do me a favor and share the show with them? There's plenty to hear in the archives, including my talk with Gillian Welsh, David Crosby, Sarah Louise, Daniel Lenoir, Jason Manzukis, Tim Heidecker, Bruce Hornsby, Lowe, and many, many more. The show is available wherever you get podcasts and always at AquariumDrunkard.com. If you need more from us before next week, why don't you head over to the site and sign up for our weekly sidecar newsletter, which features recommendations, pop culture riffs, and some of our favorite stories from Aquarium Drunkard, all delivered straight to your inbox. And don't forget, every Wednesday night on Sirius XMU Channel 35, 
AD founder Justin Gage brings you the Aquarium Drunkard Show at 7 p.m. California time. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write and produce Transmissions, which is edited and engineered by Andrew Horton, executive producer Justin Gage. You can find me on Twitter if you want to say hey or let me know what you think of the show or what you'd like to hear more of. We'll be back next week with another weird talk for these weird times. In the meantime, stay safe. Speak soon.